Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is appropriately a host of the podcast, The New Flesh. Please welcome Brett Arnold. Hey, how's it going? Doing really well. Really excited about today's episode. Um, This is a movie that I have been shocked has been on the shelf for this long. So uh, this will be a good one to get into. Yeah, uh, you asked me to do the show and you asked what my favorite horror movie was. And it was no question, no hesitation, (laughs) Videodrome. So I was delighted that you said, hell yeah, let's go. You've been hosting a horror podcast for many years. It's obviously a big part of your life. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror, how it got started, that sort of thing. Oh, man. I don't think I don't know if we've even talked about this on my show. One of the one of my favorite running gags of the New Flesh podcast, which is my podcast, is that we've never covered Videodrome. We we've, <laughs> we've never covered I don't think any Cronenberg movie. Wow. He so he looms large and I'm happy to be here to talk about it and, and direct all my New Flesh listeners here every time <laughs> they bother me about Videodrome. <laughs> Which we will cover eventually. But the my horror, I just was thinking that I don't know if I've talked about my horror origin story on the podcast, <laughs> which is my, I had a neighbor growing up who was like probably in his 20s, maybe when I was like pretty young, like at the age when like he might babysit or whatever. Right. And he showed me in my memory the first two horror movies I remember seeing at a young age that were like way too young to have seen, <laughs> and they really fucked me up was the original Evil Dead. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I was probably like, ugh, I don't know, under 10, probably. Wow. And then Toxic Avenger, <laughs> the <laughs> trauma movie, which is very memorable for me because the local blockbuster didn't. They had it, actually, but it was, you know, Blockbuster used to, like, famously censor stuff. Mm-hmm. So this was, like, a R-rated version, or it was some sort of censored version. So we actually drove to the town over, which had a Hollywood video, oh. and got the <laughs> unsanctioned, you know, trauma original sure. cut. Which Not th- your Blockbusters. No. So... <laughs> I don't know. It's still a very corporate organization. It's not like we went to a mom and pop store. We still went to Hollywood video. But th- those were the options in yeah. in Skokie at the time, Skokie, Illinois. And the only thing I remember being different about the, the two cuts, because I think we did end up watching them both, is the scene he really wanted to show me was a scene where a, they hit a little... They're like I think a bunch of teens are running over a boy on his bike. Right. Yeah, you get points depending on yeah, the, the, the sort of person it is and everything. The classic game that we all play in real life in our minds when we're in traffic and shit. It's pretty great. Really ahead of the curve. But the scene, at the blockbuster version obliterates that scene and you do not get any of the hilarious like dude flying in the air and getting run over whatever it is so seeing horror at a young age definitely intrigued me and i definitely sought it out from there and then my like before i was of age to go see r-rated horror myself i would drag my dad to take me to whatever i wanted to see and he was pretty much game for whatever i think he was game because he more often than not just fell asleep during the movie (laughs) And didn't know what crazy shit had happened and would wake up and be like, all right, well, on to the next one. <laughs> Occasionally that would backfire. You know, I, I remember he, he didn't like Clerks 2. <laughs> Clerks 2 was a little vulgar for him. But sure. we saw kept like, him up. yeah, I kept him up. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. If it was, I don't know why that movie kept him up, but he was awake and engaged with that one. But I remember him falling asleep during 
like Land of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead. And those are pretty horrifically violent and didn't seem to bother him. So, you know, having parents who didn't really mind watching R-rated stuff definitely helped. So, yeah, I just always sought out horror. It's not like my only movie vice. Like, I'm like an yeah. Oscars guy. I watch all the Oscar movies. I watch all foreign films I can get my hands on. I watch everything, but I always come back to horror and it's always it's always the number one. Hell yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite subgenre within horror? Ooh, great question. There was a period where I probably would have said like home invasion because, well, I guess to expand on that even further, I would go and say like French new extremity movies, Mm. like inside is kind of the perfect fusion of one of my favorite horror movies that that's a home invasion movie and a very French and very extreme (laughs) movie. If you've never seen it, have you covered that on this podcast? Not yet. Okay. That's not, I should have picked that one. Damn it. Um, Inside involves the title refers to a baby that is inside a woman's pregnant body sure. <laughs> and another woman decides that she would like that baby for herself. Bum, bum, bum. So <laughs> she gets it and it is as horrific as that sounds and as French as that sounds. And it's, it's great. Those guys have gone on to do a million other movies that have all disappointed me since then, <laughs> um, including Leatherface for Lions. Wow. Game. I forget their names. It's like Alessandro Bustillo and Julien Mori. That's the... F- I don't know how to pronounce it, so I say it yeah. with a French accent. <laughs> That's a shame. I, yeah, I wish you hadn't told me that they did Leatherface because that movie well, is yeah, not I, so good. <laughs> I know. That's what I mean. They've, they've done a bunch of stuff since then. And in the most recently, The Deep House, which is like yeah. underwater haunted house found footage horror movie, first person type thing, which, right. again, great on paper. Sounds great that they're doing it. And then it's yeah. kind of just a perfunctory 90-minute thing <laughs> that there's like a couple memorable sequences, but it doesn't really jump off the screen. Yeah, it was more of a like exercise in an interesting concept. <laughs> yes, yes, 100%. And yeah, something was just missing. Like I was impressed with it while also bored with it, you know? Yeah. Which is not what you want. Yeah. It, they Look, if they had a zombie fight a shark down there, maybe we'd be having a different conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the movie I would have picked for this <laughs> yeah. week. Flesh Eaters continues to uh, to shine its light on us <laughs> for underwater scenes. But yeah, today we're talking about the 1983 Videodrome from David Cronbone Cronenberg, the King of the North, back in the news these days with Crimes of the Future. Yes. Great, great movie. I was really thrilled to see it in theaters. And, you know, this is, this is the first Cronenberg that I've actually gotten to see in theaters in terms of, like, the body horror output. Oh, wow. Oh, I mean, yeah, that makes sense because... I think the first Cronenberg I saw in theaters was A History of Violence, and that was quite a while ago, but still like the late period Cronenberg where, yes, there's some horrific violence in that movie, (laughs) but it's, you know, the late period David Cronenberg literary adaptation that's very like play-like. Yeah, and you know, just getting to go there, we had a walkout when she goes, she kisses the zipper. So oh, like, <laughs> nice, nice. You got the full experience. <laughs> yeah, you gotta get a, you gotta get a walkout. David actually said, you know, he was expecting walkouts at Cannes, and I read an interview where he's like, well, actually, no one left, and it was actually me that left because I had to go pee, <laughs> so I was the only walkout. <laughs> It's interesting because, you know, as much as Crimes of the Future is great and also still looking very much into the future, a lot of what's in Crimes of the Future is here in Videodrome. You know, he talks about how we've seized control of evolution, and I think that that is very visible. It's on display here that he's thinking about just the way that TV 
impacts us even before the internet age that's part of what's so crazy about this movie to me is that all of the like interactivity of television that he's talking about is poor personal computers were common (laughs) absolutely one of my favorite details about this movie is there's a really great trailer you can find for it the original one that came out that has a couple images from the movie and clips from the movie but is 90 percent just visuals from like what is it called the commodore 64 (laughs) or whatever that computer was that came out at the time so it's like we're showing our special effects uh, just like to show you what your movie could be and it's just like word art (laughs) uh (laughs) but saying videodrome and the new flesh and stuff and it's super cool and you should seek it out but yeah this movie is a hundred percent everything you said is true it's very ahead of its time it's about the internet. It's about virtual reality in 1983 when none of those things really <laughs> existed. So it's easy to, for like, I don't know, imagine like a younger person watching this movie today and being like, yeah, I don't really, what's the big deal? And it's like, you don't understand. <laughs> you don't know how like pathetic this movie was. And that's a word that gets thrown around this movie in particular, but pretty much every Cronenberg movie gets that word thrown around. And for, including the new one and like for good reason that movie was uh, crimes of the future was sitting in a drawer for 20 years or since 1998 actually and since writing it so much of the stuff that he had written about he said he hadn't changed the word has like come (laughs) to pass like the movies about people eating plastics and david's been saying on the press tour every day like you know people have microplastics in their bodies now (laughs) like that (laughs) wasn't a thing when i wrote this so this man can't help but be prophetic, but he also has no interest in being prophetic. Like if you ask him about it, he says, yeah, it's cool that I did that. He's like, I'm not interested in being prophetic or predicting things in terms of science fiction. I'm just interested in thinking about, it's like very personal to him and like, just like what he thinks about humanity. And it just happens to line up with (laughs) the future reality because it's so like base level human. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. I think it is really interesting. I think that perhaps part of his disdain for being called a prophet and for having that sort of laid at his feet is what makes him good at it. Is this just going from his gut, pun sort of intended, you know, shooting from the hip kind of thing. I just watched this, you know, I watched it actually on 35 millimeter at Nighthawk like two weeks ago, which was a treat. I'd never seen it that way. And, you know, the prince beat up in all the ways you want it to be. It's great. (laughs) But you just said gut the pun the gut pun and it immediately made me run to my notes because i watched it again last night with the commentary track for, i don't know when it was recorded i think like in 20 20 something like two, 2015 maybe i don't know yeah he said it had been like 25 years since it had he been had a seen long time <laughs> since he had seen it he says a million things that i'll i'm sure i'll bring up the quotes but i wrote down this random quote that he said he goes just off the cuff like Mm, what you feel in your guts can become quite a weapon, can it? I'm like, oh, David, you just said the coolest thing I've ever heard so casually. Like, imagine, you know, the first time you watched this movie, I don't know what your experience was, but the first time I watched it, another vivid memory for me, in my friend Keon's basement, like just a high school buddy's basement when his parents weren't home, me, Keon, my other buddy, we're probably ripping bongs and blowing them through whatever, the dube tube to get the sure. smell away, you know? And there's something so alluring about this movie and how challenging it is, I guess at first, or it's just like a, you know, the movie becomes very subjective and is just like a hallucination come to life, like a walking nightmare type thing. And the first time you see it, it's kind of hard to parse and it's, you know, 
I don't know if it's taken the dozens of viewings over the years to like really like I have no idea what I thought the first time I saw this movie, <laughs> like what it was about. But I feel like I have a great grasp on it now. But just like Crimes of the Future, which the first time was kind of a hallucinatory, crazy experience for me and didn't really piece together all the big picture stuff. All that stuff is there and it's so dialed in and he's so on his own wavelength and he's not really giving the audience like traditional narrative beats. So you kind of just have to like piece together afterwards. Like, okay, so who is Brian Oblivion and who is his daughter and what do they <laughs> yeah. do? And like the connection between Oblivion and Convex, like everything's so fucking obtuse. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm just saying like it, we're coming from a vantage point, at least I am, and I'm sure you are too, of having seen it a few times and read about it and really understanding it. So I just don't want, like, I feel like a lot of people watch this movie and are like a little maybe off put by it. And I just want yeah. to say it is a rewarding experience <laughs> if you not even put in the like schoolwork effort, but like put in the just watch it again and you're, you'll yeah. see it in a new light. <laughs> Definitely. I, I think to your point that it helps to create a more empathetic experience for us to have to be like, I don't fully understand what's happening the first yes, time because, because Ren the, doesn't know. Exactly, exactly. That's the hallucinatory effect David wanted and he nailed it. Yes, totally, totally. His movie Rabid was his first breakthrough outside Canada in 1977 with Fast Company being well-liked, but really the Brood and Scanners also finding a foothold is what made David Cronenberg more of a known entity. The Brood is also where he began working with Howard Shore, who is a constant collaborator on his films except for The Dead's Zone is just one movie that he didn't do. Yeah. Iconic scores. My favorite Howard Shore Cronenberg joint. I just have been rewatching all of them because of, you know, obvious reasons. Crimes is out. <laughs> Gotta rewatch. Yeah. Crash. The Crash score is like stuck in my brain as the most iconic of them. But Videodrome is incredible. Crimes of the Future is incredible. I yeah. love their I was even enjoying the Existence one. Oh, yeah. Existence is great. And it doesn't it have like all the 90s new metal in it, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's crazy. Uh, Existence. I mean, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, later. But like Existence, I mean, all of his, I want to say like Existence feels like Videodrome. But I'm like, all of his movies are like another. More so than any other auteur. I feel like David Cronenberg embodies the auteurism more than anybody in that. Sure. His movies are so fucking singular. Even, Even when he's doing these literary adaptations in his late period that he didn't write, he still finds a way to inject the Cronenberg elements into them. Definitely. You know, I think that his fingerprints are all over his movies. And even in the way that the people talk about him, you yeah. know, Mark Irwin, the cinematographer in that commentary track, yeah. talks about him like Orson Welles. And he's he like, this is an Orson Welles movie. And you just get on board with what he's doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is such a good commentary track. I haven't listened to the second one yet with James Woods and Debbie Harry. But I imagine that's interesting for different reasons than like... <laughs> yeah technical <laughs> prowess and like learning about the movie i did note that this is a one thing that david says about james woods on the commentary james woods this really just rang true it really rings true in 2022 he's already uh, you're already laughing because you know what it's coming james woods was extremely paranoid at the time of this movie always worried about quote them and they want to do this and they're gonna fuck us and i don't know whether it's his nature or if he's just going through a phase so i had to keep saying there's no they, James, or they call him Jimmy. There's no, there's no they, Jimmy, which is also funny. Yeah, it's just me. There's no production entity that's forcing our hand. And this was all about the scene where Max Ren puts on the VR helmet. James Woods would not put it on. He was worried that he'd be electrocuted and kept saying that. And David's like, I thought he was joking, but then he kept talking about it to the point where I realized he was not. 
So in the scenes in the movie where the big VR helmet is on, that's David Cronenberg under there. <laughs> Hell yeah. It's so funny, too, that, first of all, I mean, it's such an iconic scene. It's so, like, emblematic of everything that's happening that it's funny that Cronenberg himself is the one under there. It does make it kind of perfect because, you know, these auteur films, you always got to be like is the main character an avatar for this director? <laughs> and like in Crimes of the Future, the answer is, fuck yes, it is. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> um, in this one, you know, I'm sure elements are, and you could really, that really adds to the to the layered reading if you wanted to be like, oh yes, David actually put himself in that scene. <laughs> we don't have to, if he didn't know the history of James Woods was actually just losing his mind, even yeah. back in 1983. <laughs> yeah. This is a movie in particular where like, it would be very convenient if James Woods was terrible in this movie. Oh, yeah, 100% he's agree. Not. He's, he's amazing. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, make, you know, I feel like this is the movie that made me seek him out as an actor because I agree. I think he's so good at falling into that role. And like, it's kind of a standout role for his in his career too. As like, when when is James Woods the lead of like a major studio movie? Like, yeah, he's always like he's in a lot of iconic movies. Worked with a lot of iconic directors. I guess the most leady role I can think of is like John Carpenter's Vampires, which was <laughs> not a hit or anything either. You know, <laughs> right? But like his biggest credits are what like Casino and Virgin Suicides and Contact, like all things where he's an important player but supporting. Right. And he is absolutely phenomenal in this lead role. And it made me w- wonder, like, is there a version of his career where he said, like, ooh, I like this art house shit <laughs> and, like, did way more instead of, hey. like, you know, the, f- the opening scene of Scary Movie 2, which, yeah. <laughs> which I love also, <laughs> unfortunately. I think that he is great. I think that his sleaziness and and whatnot really uh does come through and i I find it very funny that janet maslin hilariously called woods's performance authentic (laughs) it's it's like babe ruth calling their shot it was incredible because i don't want to i was gonna say i'm I'm trying to interview david cronenberg for fangoria for the 40th anniversary of videodrome nice and i just want to ask about that and, yeah. and see what he, <laughs> I just have so many questions I want to know. <laughs> I uh, do. I find it interesting as well that you mentioned that this is kind of a singular experience could only come from him kind of thing. It is interesting that it started so young for him where he talks about writing video Jerome in 1981 based on his childhood fears slash fascination with possibly seeing something disturbing being broadcast from the sickos in Buffalo, New York. <laughs> yeah, I love that detail. He said like, you know, the Canada signal would go off at like midnight or whatever it was. And then he, you use your antenna or whatever it is your tv would just start picking up other signals and yeah this movie came out of the idea of what if one of those like what if one of the things that came through was like you know this murder show and like (laughs) would you watch it would you call the police what would you do and that's kind of where it stemmed from i mean what a premise yeah so like yeah the plot is just like an interesting driving idea but man like once you like just take a step back and you're like, this movie opens with Civic TV, the one you take to bed with you, <laughs> and a woman waking him up and telling him his agenda, like kind of like a proto Siri or like Alexa type of thing in a way, where yeah. it's just like, God, he just from the opening shot, he, this movie's putting you again, it's 1983, and it's putting you in this dystopian future, but like also the present. And that's the other thing I love about his movies. <laughs> yeah, ah! it's uh, that's the other thing I love is that. 
they are all they kind of all function in that way where it's yeah. like when is this happening in the present but it seems like it's a dystopian future like crimes of the future especially i'm gonna keep coming back to it because i've seen it twice in the past week um yeah i don't know i could talk i'm, I'm rambling at this point no but i think you're totally right yeah. you know i also i think it's interesting that cronenberg described this as his take on taxi driver yeah i wrote that down too i thought that was completely fascinating like he actually like comes to him during the commentary like when the assassinations start happening he goes huh this is kind of my taxi driver isn't it like yeah it totally is yep and there's all this stuff like with the the key line of the movie being videodrome has a philosophy and that's what makes it dangerous i thought what he said about that was really interesting he said it's always occurred to me that more the more uh, more people get murdered in the name of various religious or philosophical concepts than do out of like sheer animalistic anger and viciousness or even sexuality. Uh, so I do think that a movement that is basically perverse and murderous will be much more organized, focused, and popular if it has a philosophy behind it. In quote marks, because I respect philosophy when it's not in quotation marks. <laughs> I found that so interesting, and we can talk more about that in terms of like Barry Convex and who he's like, he's like a Jim Baker conservative right wing figure. And it didn't, I don't know how many views it took me to like capture the idea. I think the commentary makes this very blunt where it's like, it's made clear that this signal is out there and works with anything and you could use it for anything. Like it's not just this horrible depraved shit. Like you could put the signal on like a morning news show and it would still work. But the reason they do it, they're like Barry Convex is targeting like sickos. <laughs> like Barry <laughs> Convex wants to rid the world of people who would want to watch smut on TV. And like that's just a whole other like, God, this movie's so fucking political. Yeah. And like that's like a layer that I didn't get for many years watching this as like a teenager, you know? Yeah. It is kind of just like thrown aside. You know, at one point, Brian Oblivion is like, oh, the video that it's under shapes like the tone of your hallucinations. And yes. so this is just like, uh, we want this guy to suffer. <laughs> like We want him to get fucking tortured by this because we just disagree with his tastes. <laughs> yeah. And not only that, like the thing that watching it in the theater last week, which it must have been like the day after the Buffalo shooting or something. And like watching that movie... um. Like, I always say it's pathetic, but, like, every time I watch it, I say it's more relevant now than ever. But that Mm. sentiment really hit hard days after the Buffalo shooting in which the gunman was specifically radicalized by, quote-unquote, philosophy espoused on the number one cable news network in the country. Like, this guy was just fully radicalized by Tucker Carlson great replacement theory bullshit. And, like, there's even a clip from that week of Tucker and Greenwald uh that's basically verbatim dialogue exchange from this movie that's like well you know they deserve it essentially like the (laughs) the bad people it's fine right so like it's so pathetic in like okay just take the idea that the the base idea of this videodrome you're watching tv and it's it's feeding out a signal that's causing that's turning people into murderers and stuff it's like (laughs) on that base level it's like jesus christ this movie was uh ahead of its time and it's all the, it's all just baked into the idea of it and that's why it's lasted through the years and is 40 years on we still talk about it as this revelation 
Absolutely. I did also want to just talk a little bit about the history of cable TV, because I think that that is kind of an important part of this. This wasn't David's first crack at exploring violence and sex in media. Uh, Although cable TV had already existed in 1972, the concerted efforts of lobbyists began to weaken regulations on imported signals, which allowed for the formation of a satellite distribution network, with HBO becoming the first for-pay network, and Ted Turner's TBS being at the forefront of leveraging this as well. And these deregulation actions led to an explosion of accessibility for programs in general. And so Cronenberg wrote a treatment called Network of Blood, where an independent television network employee finds a bizarre television network subscribed to by strange, wealthy people who are willing to pay to see bizarre things. And that's clear that a lot of that makes its way into <laughs> Videodrome. And this growth continued as channels become more and more niche. ESPN was founded in 1979, CNN in, in 1980 as the first 24-hour news channel, and MTV in 1981 with just a handful of promotional videos. 1981 is also when Mark Fowler becomes Reagan's head of the FCC Mm -hmm. and indicates regulation will continue to fall. So from 1980 to 1990, the number of subscribers, the people who become influenced by cable TV, balloons to 53 million, and the amount of networks grows from 28 to 79, and they start developing their own programs instead of just broadcasting shows from traditional networks. And you can see sort of how this lays the groundwork for this movie in terms terms of, you know, he talks about the economics of it, and they're a small channel, so they have to find things that aren't offered elsewhere. And this is the real the real facts of the case, is that all of these channels start blossoming and, and having to really dig into one specific thing, that they're like, well, this is just the thing that will do the best. Yeah, sex violence, basically. Right. right. Uh, I mean, that's like what Nightcrawler is all about, too. Like, you know, if it bleeds, it leads type mentality that is our media and our <laughs> mass media. And this movie, Videodrome, is all about the effects of the mass media on the human psyche and the human body. And, you know, David Cronenberg's always interested in the reinventing of the human body. This is a quote from him from the commentary. I really like reinventing the human body. It's being done all the time, perhaps in more subtle ways. There's a lot of people on this planet whose bodies are modified in ways that would seem unthinkable even just 10 or 20 years ago, let alone centuries, and it's all taken for granted. That quote is about Videodrome, but perfectly (laughs) parallels and anticipates crimes of the future. But he also said technology isn't really effective if it doesn't expose its true meaning until it is incorporated into the human body. And most of it does already. This is even back in, or I guess this is in 20-whatever when he was talking about it. Uh, People wear hearing aids that are little computers. People have pacemakers or have their intestines modified. It's really quite incredible what we've been able to do to the human body and really to take it to some place that evolution on its own could not take it. Technology has really taken over evolution. That's a key thesis line for the movie. We've seized control of evolution ourselves without really quite being conscious of it. It's no longer the environment that affects changes in the human body. It's our minds, our concepts, our technologies that are doing that. So that brilliantly describes everything he's getting at here and brilliantly describes everything he's getting at in Crimes of the Future (laughs) and makes me think if I rewatch every one of them, I'm going to say the same thing about (laughs) everyone. I mean, Crash is also the same thing. It's about violence changing the body and how sex interacts with that. And David Cronenberg even has pokes fun at the audience for thinking that it's another David Cronenberg movie about people human with merging with technology. He has a character say it to Elias. uh, James Spader says to Elias Codius, like, uh, what about the human you know you said this is about merging human with technology what what happened to that 
because uh, he was talking about it from pure sexual terms. And he's like, right. oh, that's just science fiction <laughs> stuff. Like, he just is purely snowing him to say, oh, no, it's really about sex. So I love that Cronenberg has enough fun to, like, poke fun at what he's getting at in all of his movies. But definitely, I just think that mass media stuff is so key because this movie's about... I mean, think about it. This was anticipating a culture where we're dictated by screens all, all the time. Yeah. Uh, this movie specifically is the TV, but you could sub in what really happened, which is like, our phones are now TVs. I mean, they're all TVs. Mm-hmm. It's still TV. It's all the same fucking thing. Sure. Quibi. Very popular, <laughs> yeah. as we know. Yes, Quibi. It, <laughs> Quibi was... Uh, David Cronenberg anticipated Quibi. You're right. <laughs> so we're all looking at these screens all the time. This movie's about the effect that that has on a person and how that's like the driving force in our society is these screens, and these mass media and how that it truly is controlling people, even whether they know it or not. And this movie makes it plain that they are... It is effective and it works. And yeah. again, it's just hard to watch now with all these like literally we have a network on our the most watched cable news. Sorry if there's a lot of fans who listen to watch Fox News or like, I don't know. My dad watches Fox <laughs> News. It's fine. It's not fine, but he does do it. But like the most watched cable news network in the country literally abides by the principles that Max Ren's network is abiding by here where they're just like, yeah, well, we're going where the eyeballs are. And the eyeballs say <laughs> that we have to be scaremongering freaks. Yeah. And and like that's the thing. It's dangerous. Fox News is dangerous because there's a philosophy behind it. Right. And it's right. philosophy is just a right wing propaganda thing. And it all I could talk about that shit all day, but like the fact that this movie was that prescient in that big a way, like you could say that Videodrome anticipated this exact political cultural moment we're in. And it like boggles the mind to think about. And that's why I'm excited to hopefully one day talk to Cronenberg about this movie in context. What I meant to say earlier was I wanted to ask him. I know I don't know if he would ever talk about it in these terms. He's an old man now. I'm sure he would. But like, <laughs> isn't it crazy that Max Wren became James, like, like James Woods became James Woods? Like, yeah. he is the poster boy for Fox News brainwashed idiot. Yeah. He took he took it very seriously. He took it very seriously, <laughs> and like him, I think David would love to talk. I, I in my mind, I'm like he would love to open up to me, a stranger, and tell me about all the problems he had with James Woods that he's never told anybody. But on the commentary track, him saying he's paranoid, like that is so interesting. Like talk about that, and yeah, what do you? How do you think that you know shaped did, the performance? Shaped the performance. Shaped his like did Fox like did Videodrome quote like did Fox Videodrome news we're gonna call it. Did that <laughs> radicalize him to where he is yeah. now? Was he always like this? Like, I don't know. I think there's so many... That's just like a meta element to this movie that's added because of the real-life actor. But it is interesting. I mean, it's kind of perfectly embodies the theme of the movie in the fucking lead actor's life. Absolutely. I, and I think even though he is Canadian, I think that Reagan taking power in this time is really impactful on just maybe... Maybe not even the environment it's being made in, but the environment it's released into. Sure. You know, it certainly impacts it. You know, it's a very repressive regime and atmosphere. And Cronenberg explicitly says in the behind the scenes stuff, the documentary, the that the, his films deal with what happens when repression and order break down. And I think that this is so perfect for this sort of uh, the right-wing moral majority that he talks about is really coming into power with Reagan at the forefront. And I think that it, it's just so impactful. It's crazy that it is so prescient about today, but also feels like it couldn't have come out in any other time. A hundred percent. 
hundred percent. This is uh, going off that. This is what he says about Barry Convex, who he describes as Jim Baker. The premise for this was that underneath the whole conspiracy of debauched satellite programming is a man of the cloth drawing in the right people in order to eliminate them. That's what I was saying earlier. Not far from the truth. The moral majority. What a name. The best way for them to operate is to eliminate the amoral minority. And what better way to do it than, than with television? And that's why they roped Max into their plans. Um, and Barry Convex and Harlan, he says, are representatives of the moral right. They see it as their right to destroy perverse liberals like Max. I didn't really know this film would get political when I started to write it, but it did get quite political in a subtle way. And then there's a part where he must be making out with the TV or whatever it is, because David says, now, this is, is this what television is doing to you? He's basically getting fucked by television, which I think everybody is. <laughs> and I'm like, another banger from David. Like, this guy's putting, like, poster quotes out for his own movie. No one's, no one's paying any mind. Mm-hmm. I also, I do love that quote that he talks about eliminating the perverted liberals and stuff, especially because he talks about, I think that the next thing he says is something about how, like, he thinks that it's good that he didn't make max wren like this perfect guy that he is like he has his own yes, sleaziness max and is that's the thing max is his audience like max is the same as the person he's pursuing to watch civic tv he is interested in the perverse weird shit and that's right. why he's able to fall into what he falls into yep and this is also interesting about the movie's influence that is like another layer that I hadn't really thought of until I heard David say it. Perhaps the final victory of Videodrome is that you cause violence to not others but yourself. That's the ending. It kills himself, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, a television program that could cause people to commit suicide. Well, I think we've seen this influence on other movies like The Ring. And I was like, oh my God, he is kind of right. Yeah, This does anticipate The Ring in an interesting way. It, the Ring, I mean, I guess you could assign, I have never really watched The Ring as an adult from like a lens of what is this about, you know? But like, sure. maybe it is a, a saying something about media and watching things. I don't know. But I do think he's right that it was sneakily influential in that way, too. I agree. I think that it definitely had a lot of influence on The Ring, um, which, hey, for people out there, has also been covered as the best horror movie ever made. <laughs> so Ooh, nice. The Gore Verbinski? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. I haven't seen it in a very long time. I, they're, they're, I'll, I'll watch it again when they put out a 4K or something. I feel like, is yeah. there even a Blu-ray of that? There must be. I, th- I think that there is a yeah. Blu-ray of it. Yeah. And honestly, I think that it is is really interesting just in terms of like a lot of the uh, American remakes of those sorts of movies like didn't work as well as the original but that one in particular I think is an example of just having like an influx of money really helping yeah. to take <laughs> the, the the idea of the original to another level absolutely I, I think that the Verbinski one is really really good and Verbinski but. just fucking rules so like yeah that's <laughs> not like whoever made Ringu uh, Hideo N- N- Nakata Right, I believe. I, th- I mean, not to d- besmirch them, but like Gore Verbinski is a top shelf fucking filmmaker. I oh, know yeah. he's made you know all these blockbusters, but go back and watch Pirates of the Caribbean. It's great, the first one, and I don't know if is it the first one that has the incredible. There's another one that has insane visual effects. Maybe it's the one with Davy Jones is whatever. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah. They're yeah. all they're impressively directed, and in, if those uh, watching the Pirates of the Caribbean, I haven't seen them beyond like the second one, but. Watching those first two and comparing them to any similarly budgeted Marvel or Disney thing today, like those are real movies mm-hmm. with stunts and amazing effects that they actually labor over and choreography out the ass. Choreography. I just I lament. It's so funny. I'm like lamenting Disney blockbusters <laughs> from 2003, but it's true. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Well, it is funny that just like that's their own property too, and it's just like the way that their own filmmaking has degraded. In it's the- it's the. 
I think I talked about it on a Patreon. We just we just ranked all the, or we did all the Jurassic Park movies ahead of the new one, mm-hmm. and I was talking about Fallen or Jurassic World, which. I don't know when the last time you watched it was, but I was pretty kind to it when it came out. But rewatching it, I was not kind to it. And is that the newest one that isn't the one in theaters? It's the first of the newest ones. It's the oh, first okay. of the trilogy with Chris Pratt. Okay. And I it, I saw it in theaters and then that yeah, was Yeah, I saw it in theaters <laughs> and I said, that was fun enough. And I never thought about it again. Yeah. And then I watched it again and it has, I'll read someone else's review that explains why it looks so bad. But All like, right. it looks... Like, it's shot like a Netflix sitcom. Like, there's no lighting choices. <laughs> oh, it's just garishly bright. And, like, it changes a little in the end when dinosaurs come up. But, like, this is what someone on Letterboxd, Matt Ellis, wrote. The curse of television is why this movie looks bad. He said, lighting for coverage is ruining cinema. I remember reading interviews about how excited the director was that this came in under budget and ahead of schedule. And <laughs> Jesus Christ, can you see it? In the bland and uninspired cinematography throughout the first two thirds, two shots with shitty dialogue containing no shadows, awful computer-generated environments that reek of the worst of Lucas's prequels, and so on and so on, which is baffling because the DP... John Schwartzman's work on Michael Bay's films proved that you can turn a piece of garbage pop cinema into a visual masterpiece. And this is really interesting. This perfectly sums it up. If Jurassic Park via Spielberg represents the final throes of the new Hollywood system mixing pop art with radical craft, then Jurassic World is a symptom of a return to the vertically integrated studio system of the 30s, churning out formulaic and uninspired shots lit and designed for efficiency rather than aesthetics. You, wow. may, you may think this is all just a matter of taste, but it's not. It's indicative of a creative climate that favors quick profit and centralized power over everything. Like, that perfectly embodies where we're at with blockbuster cinema today, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, like, why they all, like, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness has Raimi elements. I'll give it that. It has some fun, but, like, still largely looks like a green screen piece of shit. And mm-hmm. they all do. And just, just 15 or what was it? How, oh, my God. 20 years ago now, almost. Pirates of the Caribbean was this scale of movie and it looked like a movie and i i just want that back we're, we're off topic but it's relevant <laughs> it is relevant it is relevant and also who cares it's yeah. it's an interesting conversation thank you i agree <laughs> having a good time <laughs> but 1981 is when videodrome starts to actually coalesce with david transforming network of blood into a not totally complete draft of videodrome in january then using that to attract a very interesting cast many of the actors are local tarantonians but like we said our star is james woods he was already a fan of rabbit and scanners and like we said is basically perfect for this role yeah, i really see myself in this character <laughs> i'll do it i like to imagine that he uh similar to dennis hopper was like i am max wren <laughs> i mean he yeah i i yeah. i uh, i wanna let's get james woods on the new flesh podcast <laughs> and ask him all of these things let's james, see how long in there man let's see how long he would last before he left because i'd be peppering him <laughs> with questions like are you max why are you so fucking stupid do you know do you know how funny it is that it's you that's like yeah. this <laughs> do you have any self-awareness <laughs> he doesn't so it wouldn't work it wouldn't work very well but our co-star, Debbie Harry, oh, plays Nikki Brand. Yes. Absolutely incredible. Not an actress, uh, Debbie Harry, and right. had never really done something like this. And I yeah, she great pull. Has started her film career in nineteen eighties Union City, but like that wasn't what she was known for. No, like, Debbie she Harry was the lead singer of Blondie. The lead singer of Blondie, who was Blondie wasn't just a big band. They were like, I believe David said like global phenomenon and also debbie harry was like in the zeitgeist of new york city and like hanging out with william burroughs and all those people he found her fascinating and 
plucked her and asked her to do it and she was game and yeah. i think it's a great performance and i think it's easy to mistake it for a bad performance because it's very understated it's very like disaffected i guess she's kind of like monotone and just like speaking like she's self-aware but doesn't seem like it like she's mm-hmm. like she's like the way she talks on the talk show she is self-aware but then she like falls into the video drum thing and you're like are you self-aware <laughs> but i think it's all dialed in and calculated exactly the way david wanted and i think it all works i don't really have a complaint about it i just think i've seen people complain that she's probably like stoic or something and i just reject it i think it's all it's all part of the character yeah i think you know david talks about how he had to ask her to sort of tone down the like self-parody of performing on stage versus performing for a camera like this i agree i think that the understatement helps to enhance the like interiority of the character that she is drawn to this visceral show but uh but yeah I, i love parallel lines in particular blondie's great I love Blondie so much, and I love that Debbie Harry does the whitest white woman rap in history on Rapture, (laughs) and it makes me laugh. I love that song so much. It's the most, like, banging fucking bass line ever. It's so good. It is. What a song. What a song. But, man, every time that rap verse comes on, it (laughs) just blast off. Sure shot, because the man from Mars stopped eating cars. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about, yeah. Debbie Harry? It's wild. It's yeah. a really fun one. I, I love that song, too. It's a lot of fun. That verse, every time I'm like, all right, it's starting to wrap up. No, yeah, it keeps people, going. I think people argue it's like the first rap song, and <laughs> I don't I don't want to wade into these hip-hop waters, but I do yeah. not think Debbie Harry invented rap. I'll no, I don't. <laughs> I'm going to say she didn't, but... <laughs> or if she did, if she did, they really improved upon it <laughs> since she introduced it but blondie was going through some tumultuous times there was a hiatus and then eventual breakup in 1982 after the hunter so mostly solo stuff and acting for debbie in the 80s um jack creely plays brian oblivion amazing name which he does talk about how it's a stage name but even still <laughs> i think it's really fun yes who who is he based on i'm sure you know all of marshall that. mcluhan marshall yes. mcluhan who as a media studies major in college you know, we talk about the medium is the message of course. all the time. And he was a figure that loomed large. It was Marshall McLuhan and Lessick. I forget the guy's first name. But there's all right. these, like, that's a guy who's still alive and talking about the same things. But I don't know how I would describe the medium is the message to... It's kind of like... Uh, this movie the- kind of is a perfect embodiment of the idea, but, like, it's hard to distill. I think if you were... You go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that it's it's kind of like the act of imbibing something is part of what the thing is, you know, that, you know, if, if you watch something on a VHS, you're going to get a different experience out of it than you are in going to a theater and sort of the way that it's presented to you, the medium of the, the film in this, in this case contributes to what it's trying to say. Yes. So I think McLuhan was arguing that like modern electronic communications, like radios, TVs, films, and computers would have far reaching sociological aesthetic and philosophical consequences to the point of actually altering the ways in which we experience the world so this man nailed it and (laughs) david cronenberg who went to the same college that this guy taught at right university of toronto yes and he didn't have any class with him or anything and he you know laments not doing that but that it wasn't just like oh there was this professor professor at my school had these like ideas that that i knew about it was his ideas were so popular that like they're nationalized and I learned about them in college and they're in books and shit. So yeah. like David just happened to be at the school at the same time as this man. 
but it all they had, basically he took Marshall McLuhan's thesis and made a movie around it. You could say in one way. I mean, I don't think it's that simple, but you could distill it down to that idea, and it kind of works in that way. Absolutely, you know, I I think McLuhan is a really interesting guy. You know, he has a couple of other quotes, and David specifically says that he was the kind of guy where he's more than just the sound bites. Like there are a lot of quotes yeah. that you can just like. Uh, throw out well, yeah because brian but... oblivion's based on him you know and like <laughs> right. the whole thing is he like you know records himself on these tapes and has all these tapes and prolific quotes and ideas right the the television screen is the human or is the retina of the mind's eye <laughs> like that is some marshall McLuhan soundbite shit for sure oh yeah oh yeah and one of those that he said that really works with this movie is he said that when you're on the phone or on the air you have no body which I thought was a really interesting Holy sort of shit. new flesh thing. <laughs> that is so cool, and that could be a whole new David Cronenberg movie. Yeah. Like, that's a log line. I'd watch it. Let's Hell go. Yeah. The other uh, quote of his that I wanted to pull, down, uh, pull out was that he said, mental breakdown is the very common result of uprooting and inundation with new information. And hmm. I think that we are constantly inundated with new information all the time. God, yeah, we are. And and I think we have seen some mental breakdown yeah. happen. Yeah, we have more mass shootings than anywhere else ever. Still yeah. happening. Everyone needs therapy. <laughs> like I don't know. It's it's a perfect embodiment of where we are. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, there's something about a movie from the '80s that sticks in your craw in 2022. That really, God, I it's just I could watch this movie and I have like a million times, and it would never lose its power. I'd always gain a new thing every time I watch it still like this time on the, this is what I learned this time is that the Ren Max was a racing motorcycle that (laughs) David Cronenberg was obsessed with. And that's why his name is Max Ren. Hell yeah. And I'm pretty sure loved his motorcycles. I'm pretty sure he was trying to say that Nikki brand, the name is just like, (laughs) because she brands herself and nicks herself. He called her Nikki brand. (laughs) That's like, like what? He's, I love it. I love, I love it. it. Like the fact that he's so brilliant and makes the most brilliant movies I've ever seen. Movies that are <laughs> chock full of ideas and they're not half formed. They're full formed ideas that you might not even catch until five years later. And then he also is naming characters Nikki Brand because she cuts herself. Like hell yeah, he's a genius. He's a mad genius. <laughs> That's a perfect level of corny for me. Where I'm yeah. like, fuck yes, get that in there. <laughs> I love this man. And like, I think people don't talk about how funny his shit is enough, especially He's so funny, especially crimes. And, and this too, there's a lot of funny moments, but crimes is like laugh out loud, hilarious to me. And I see people and I've seen it with a couple crowds that are just stoic, dour, not laughing at anything. And I'm like, <laughs> what do you think is like, you think this is like, <laughs> you're sitting here like stroking your chin while he's getting jerked around in this fucking bony high chair. Like, yeah. it's funny. Like, like, yes, it is you know an indictment not an indictment i guess but like a an examination of what we're doing to our bodies and our the environment's doing to us and all this stuff and like how that manifests in the human body and it's brilliant but it's also hilarious that he sleeps in a giant vagina alien bed <laughs> like you can laugh at these things people Definitely. it's very funny and the ear man stuff hilarious oh, because so good yeah because what does he say about that he goes uh yeah i guess it's okay if you like escapist entertainment it's <laughs> david cronenberg commenting on all the fucking movies he can't stand the modern bullshit i just I, i'm in love with this man i can't believe he's great i he's just brilliant 
I'm, I don't know if you're as, ex- like, it's just so, ex- there's a new David Cronenberg movie in theaters right now across Hell the yeah. country. <laughs> it's, it's a limited release, but it's fairly wide for a limited. It's like, yeah, it was like 700. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's actually technically wide. I think. Yeah. It's like 700 plus. And then you live in New York city. It's playing like every hour on the hour. So <laughs> Hell yeah. Good really for him. Go God bless it. David. Yeah. <laughs> David and the director of photography, Mark Irwin, began filming in October of 1981. They really jumped in with both feet by spending the first week shooting the monitor inserts, which includes the horny shows Apollo and Dionysus and Samurai Dreams, uh, as well as the torture of Videodrome itself, which I feel like is a really good move to kind of set the tone for the actors, make sure that people have something to react to instead of just filming them, like having a second unit come in to do these inserts. filming all these people being whipped and shit. They said it was a very strange set, but fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I also thought it was funny that david's only qualms about this were shooting on tape yeah yeah he was like uh it was weird yeah he didn't seem to love doing that yeah i i found this interesting quote he says he had done a little bit with peep show the tv show that's right and these two inch tapes with multiple cameras so we could edit as we were shooting going from camera to camera on peep show and there wasn't any of that on video drum and it's very strange i never really felt i got these scenes until we reshot them off the monitors right <laughs> both mark and i are very fascinated by videotape it has a whole other feel but i was much happier when we were back to shooting film I thought it was funny that he I never something I never thought of. He mentioned how fucking annoying it was to have to sh- constantly be shooting television screens and content mm-hmm. on television screens right. and how, you know, you had to calibrate the cameras and the effects and like whatever, I don't know what it was like back then, but you know, if you try to point your camera at a TV screen, it used to like, you know, give you the gray lines and whatnot. So like that's right. something they had to deal with constantly also, which is just like a technical feat that I'm like, damn, yeah, that is annoying. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. The effects that went into this whole thing are insane. Even just the stunts and makeup took a lot of time, you know. Ricky uh, Baker. Oh, he's so incredible. Big part of what makes us a success, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. But, um... They were the video drum footage itself. They shot like 10 to 12 hour days, and the <laughs> video FX supervisor recalls feeling disoriented at the end of the day because of the extremity. But like you said, other people were like, Hey, we're just making a movie here. It's fun. Yeah. Cause uh, like, I think they, the, one of the quotes from the person was like, You just hear David off camera being like, Now whip her harder. <laughs> like, and it like, yeah, it wasn't that, it wasn't super intense, but it was. It was kind of intent. Right, right. And like you said, Rick Baker was in charge of makeup. We'll talk about some of the specific effects as we go through, but the... I mean, it's incredible. He was just coming off winning the very first makeup effects Oscar for American Werewolf in London. The average age in the makeup department was 23. Amazing. Love that. <laughs> it's like a trauma oh, movie. They're just making... Yeah. It's like a... David Cronenberg movies are like... It's like... Do you ever see that Winnie, Winnie the Pooh meme where he's wearing a suit? And the oh, second yes. one... The first one is... Winnie the Pooh watching Troma. The second one is Winnie the Pooh watching David Cronenberg. I think that David Cronenberg movies are like the high-minded Troma films in that wow. Tromas are just like really nasty and not really about anything. And Cronenberg's movies are about something first, but mm. they absolutely have the viscera and the, the level of insane, silly, over-the-top, but incredible gore that a Troma movie would have. I mean, of course, it's better because it's rick baker and not <laughs> lloyd kaufman and a bunch of interns he's not paying but i do think that i made that i wrote that down the other day and thought thought it was interesting yeah i think that they are playing in a lot of the same sandbox i think that even you know to your point about how people take the cronenberg movies very seriously but there is a lot of comedy in them you know i think he has a same similar kind of like giggly fascination with like genitalia and stuff oh yeah absolutely absolutely i mean 
stomach vagina. We haven't talked about sure. stomach vagina yet. Oh yeah. Iconic imagery, one of the most iconic pieces of imagery from this movie. And I mean, Crimes of the Future, we get stomach vagina 2.0. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The man <laughs> loves stomach vaginas in Rabbit, is it? Or Shiver Rabbit where she gets the the yep. the penis under her armpit basically. That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and like those things are all based out of real anxieties and stuff, but they they do manifest in hey, there's a penis on this girl's armpit. Like, it's okay. (laughs) You can laugh. Hell yeah. I think that's important because it is, it can be stuffy, high-minded shit if you want to interpret it that way, but you shouldn't. You should be laughing along with it. Hell yeah. He's having a good time. Why shouldn't you? 100%. The script was basically never actually finished with Cronenberg changing his mind about the direction of the movie right up until the end of shooting. December, Christmas Eve, they said. That basically... He said that's not how he works at all, ever, and that he doesn't like that it happened that way, but that was just how it was had to do with the funding, I guess, right. and how the funding got doled out. They kept talking about the funding in terms of, like, it's one of those things where, like, you have no money for a while, and then you get all the money in the fourth quarter of the year, and you shoot all your stuff. It just sounded like it's very Canadian tax things that were yep. preventing stuff from going, on, uh, going up. But I guess this has more to do with the crimes of the future, but I like it's interesting to talk about just David Cronenberg's history with like the censors oh, in yeah. Canada and how like, you know, he was, was it shivers he made on like the first, like it was one of the first movies to use like Canadian tax dollars to just, like the national funded movie. And he made yeah. this horrific sex, <laughs> sex violence, <zombies>. sex <laughs> zombie movie to the point where he said, this was in a crimes. Of the F- or I forget where I read this, but someone wrote an article about shivers being this like basically pornographic, perverse thing and it got national you know in canada publication and david cronenberg's got david cronenberg and his family got kicked out of their apartment and yeah. like because there was they were like persona non gratas and like so he has such a personal i don't know want to say like bent or revenge against censors but like all that stuff ha- totally impacts his work especially kind of the future where you can tell he's kind of like thumbing his nose at the bureaucrats who try to like categorize art you know (laughs) yeah you know he talks about especially the way that there isn't it's not like a laws thing it's completely down to whoever is censoring it at the time like yes their own opinion loves the arbitrary well he doesn't love it he hates it but he loves to point out how arbitrary the rating system was or there wasn't even a rating system then in canada it was just we don't like this cut it like that's it right so he and they'd say and he would defend himself and say, well, it's actually this is the meaning of it. And then the MPAA would say or not the MPAA, the the body that was rating it would say, oh, we didn't get that. So therefore, <laughs> the audience wouldn't get that. And right. we haven't changed our mind. You have to cut. It. <laughs> so, yeah, the arbitrariness of censorship and how it's just like a guy making an arbitrary call. There's no rubric to follow. He's very fascinated with all that stuff. And as he should be, because he's making these movies that they're making arbitrary cuts on, which we are seeing it now on Criterion in its preferred form, in the form that he wants it. But right. apparently when it came out, it was it sounds like he was cut to shit. I don't know yeah. if that was... He made it sound like it's, it was released that way, but I, I haven't read into it enough to know if that's what, what happened. Yeah, he was saying about how they were like, oh, it just has to go out this way in Canada. But he was like, this is the the cut yeah, of the film. If you print it that way, that's the print that's going to go everywhere. So yeah, I yeah. think it was at one point a truncated version. He also talks about screening a 75-minute version yeah. at, that oh. really tested poorly. And I wonder what I that imagine. was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just them talking. There's no yeah. sex or violence in it. 
That'd be so strange. <laughs> the late period Cronenberg cut. And uh, yeah, they uh, finished shooting, like you said, Christmas Eve, and then they had to do additional photography in March and May of 82 uh, and for makeup and a revised climax. And then again, the story was sort of fiddled with in the editing room. So it's wild that it feels as coherent as it does, in my opinion. You know, 100%. easy for this to feel disjointed. It's incredible that it's like a whole movie that you'd never think, was this like written on the fly? You'd never think right. that. I mean, maybe people who don't like it would say that because it seems <laughs> off-putting. But it's not, it's, you know, it's very well thought out and it does not reek of a movie that was put together quickly and while they were doing it. It does not feel that way. No. And I mean, one of the things that frustrates me about it is just that it cost us some cool effects that never got shot. Yes. You know, he talks about the video dandruff that sounds interesting and having people and objects, quote, Twitch video broken down from celluloid films, 4,000 line resolution to 520 line video resolution. Their body edges would become serrated, their coloring electric and almost neon like. But then he also went on to say that despite being present in every stage of the drafts, it wasn't, quote, this is the quote now, yeah. it wasn't the quality of their effects per se, but I didn't have to see the actual twitches in context to know that they would have disrupted the film's pacing. They didn't gel with the surrounding footage. That's the main reason they were cut. Michael was very disappointed, but it wouldn't have been true to portray this as him and me being destroyed by budget restrictions. I've not regretted their loss. So there you go. Yeah, I think he's right that it doesn't need those twitches he's talking about. But I think like I want to know what that looked like. And I'm yeah. interested to know. And there's a lot that oh, there's another thing he talks about that was cut that was or in the in the script and never made it was like when they kiss and they like yeah. merge and then like they merge into like a puddle. It sounds like an Alex Mack situation. Like they merge <laughs> into a puddle that then goes into somebody else. Yeah. It sounds really heady and interesting. And then do you have the notes about the ending that he cut? About, I do, yeah. Yeah, and like he basically had this uh, version in the script that was like basically after he shoots himself, he ends up back on the video drum screen with Nikki. And it's like, but the reason he cut it, he goes, I don't believe in the afterlife. And therefore, <laughs> this scene implies that there's some sort of afterlife. So I had to get rid of it because I yeah. do not want that to be the implication <laughs> at all. I thought that was really interesting. There's like this whole I, I scene really where they, too. yeah, where they like not only do they meet in the video gym arena, but like they start. Uh, t- fucking each other's stomachs and like touching yeah. each other's stomach vaginas and stuff and yeah. apparently pulling out sex organs like weird sex organs and it just sounded nuts but yeah I- obviously <laughs> they didn't do it for good reason i think it ends very impactfully definitely you know I- first of all there was a lot of talk about maybe having bianca and nikki wind up being like the same person or getting yeah that's a little confusing. in his mind yeah but i mean that to conflated in his mind I understand. Which, right. Like, because there's that one scene where was it was the, the chick who reads him his daily news, his oh, secretary yes, uh, or whatever. Uh, Birdie? No. Birdie? Yeah, I don't remember. Something like that. She, <laughs> Something like yeah, that. Yeah, she, he sees Nikki as... Bridie. He sees that's her it. as Nikki, right? And then yeah. for like a split second. And that's kind of the first moment that you are indicated that, oh, what he's seeing is not to be trusted. It's perhaps he's hallucinating. Yeah, and it's not, that's not until 30 minutes into the movie, which I noted and I yeah. thought was pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, these two women were also going to have chest vaginas with a giant foam latex mutant dick and vagina that breathed <laughs> and ejaculated. And they did build these these Love foam, that. Uh, genitalia. And he, he said, quote, after the suicide, Max ends up on the video drum set with Nikki hugging and kissing and neat stuff like that. A happy ending? Well, it's my version of a happy ending. Boy meets girl on the video drum set with the clay wall maybe covered in blood. I'm not sure. Freudian rebirth imagery, pure and simple. 
And he taught. He did say that his uh, his atheism played a large role in why it was struck. But also, they were behind schedule, and Debbie Harry was struck by the flu that had torn through the whole crew at some point or another. And so he said, I, "It just doesn't work for the ending." And I agree that the way that it does end, which we'll talk about, like the repetition and everything, does really work. I, I think in, a, in an interesting way. Absolutely. And yeah, so this brings us to February 3rd, 1983, the actual release day. Interesting fact that I learned during this research, 1983 has the most R-rated movies of any year. Huh. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> so yeah. there you go. <laughs> Instantly my favorite year of cinema now. <laughs> it's also a double year for Crone, since Dead Zone does release right. in 1983. Uh, plus Christine, Sleepaway Camp, and Psycho 2, each one having been the best horror movie ever made. Yeah, those are all great. I love all those movies, especially Psycho 2. Very underrated. Oh, Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And the movie made just over $2 million on just under a $6 million budget. But, you know, in a bit of perhaps self-fulfilling prophecy has, of course, found life as a cult film. Andy Warhol called it the clockwork orange of the 80s. And we're calling it the best horror movie ever made, baby. That's right. They're right. I agree. They are right. They said it and I said it. (laughs) So to get into the to that, like the actual like plot functions of it the very first production card brings my first question which is why is there no representation for videodrome at universal theme parks yes oh my (laughs) god the new flesh ride yes give me a video ride that actually pulses out at you yeah or do you come out of it you have a tumor (laughs) (laughs) a don DeMello style stunt show where they're like shooting cancer guns at oh my god (laughs) yes i i used to love those stunt shows i went was it was it a water world stunt show that i saw yeah okay yeah i was gonna say (laughs) i went to one of those yeah oh my god and the title glitches into place and then we get the station id for channel 83 civic tv the one you take to bed with you famously the new flesh podcast logo rips that off and it's great. Thank I mean, you. it's great slogan, great art. The station itself isn't real, but is based on City TV, right. which was known for its explicit and risque content in the late night blocks. Uh, the softcore porn in particular became quite popular, and it was called the Baby Blue Movies, which I thought was a fun That's name. That's very funny. That is some <laughs> Canadian Cinemax shit, if I've ever heard it. <laughs> And we're then brought into this world sort of slowly and painfully by Max Wren's wake-up call. And this is interesting on two points. First of all, it's the movie Shocking Wren Out of Sleep and Into Reality, which, of course, presages his decline into the blurring of reality. Uh, 16 years before The Matrix? Right. (laughs) Mind-blowing. I love thinking about the parallels, especially because Existence came out like three weeks after The Matrix or something. (laughs) Or maybe before. I don't remember. They're very close. Yeah. And... I also think that it's interesting just in terms of like blurring the line between technology and man in a uh, Magritte's treachery of images kind of way (laughs) where she's like, hey, Max, it's me. But is that her? No, it's an image of her, but it's very close to being her. And it's like, that's the new flesh that they're talking about. Like she says, hey, it's me. No, it's not. Yeah. That might be all that's left. Long live the new flesh. We're all going to be on television screens. As Brian Oblivion says, this is the future. Right. God, this movie is rocking it from frame one incredible (laughs) i also think it's telling that he fell asleep in front of the tv like that of course and wakes up in front of it and then spends his whole day looking at one it's it's (laughs) does it sound sound familiar (laughs) Uh, uh, no no i don't i don't know what you're talking about i'm staring at a screen within a screen right now that has two screens that are us (laughs) great i feel great and healthy (laughs) the retina of the mind's eye yes I like that one shot. It just it shows it's Brian Oblivion on the talk show, and it's just like other people are talking, but it cuts to him like like this, yeah, <laughs> like just moving his head and chin, like as if like he's moving his head to look at the person who's talking, just like 
intuitively being like, mm, I'm going to look over here now. Mm, yeah. <laughs> give, I, him a, give him a little time to respond. I love that. Yes. I love that. And yeah, the, there is like a little extra time to respond when they ask him a question, which is a great detail. <laughs> and he's off to his first meeting of the day at a seedy and chaotic hotel where he's there to negotiate the purchase of Samurai Dream for Civic TV. Very funny with the dildo all dressed up in a little outfit. <laughs> yeah. A dildo in like a kimono. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I found this uh, quote from Irwin where he said, we shot it in half a day, and that's where I came into the business, was shooting porn. Yes. So I felt right at home. <laughs> I told David that I hadn't realized the Japanese were so raunchy, but he confessed that he'd made up all that Oriental ritualism yeah. surrounding the dildo. <laughs> Super funny <laughs> and probably problematic and wouldn't happen today, but I love it. It's great. Yeah, he, he literally had it carved the night before. <laughs> and uh, Give me and- a wooden dick and a kimono (laughs) let's go but in the in the boardroom they say too much class is bad for sex which i thought was a very funny line Mm. but also i thought it was funny especially since Irwin, the the dp called the foggy shot of the exterior his kurosawa shot (laughs) hell yeah but max himself isn't sure about it he says it's too soft he wants something tough to break through the noise and that's what he's going to get as his buddy and TV pirate Harlan introduces him to a, sc- a scrambled signal coming somewhere out of Malaysia, he thinks. And it's someone being tortured and killed, and they can only watch about 60 seconds of it before it rescrambles itself. Fancy tech, so Max asks Harlan to look into it. And th- he jumps over to his next meeting. They're filming the Rena King show, which is where we also get a lot of the thematic setup. You know, we got some right away, but tonight television and social responsibility <laughs> very uh, sort of on the nose in a way that it's like all right good we need to get this in there yeah he's there to debate nikki brand who's a radio personality and brian oblivion media prophet coming in via satellite and this is where he describes his channel's content as an economic necessity but also specifically a, a socially positive act mm. because people need a vent for their fantasies and frustrations and that's exactly what uh, tucker carlson and glenn greenwald said about posting violent threats online like, they're basically defending the people. They're basically saying, Twitter shouldn't ban people for saying, I want to fucking kill you. That's their outlet. Right. Unbelievable. It just gets to me that, like, Cronenberg, it might seem silly, but, like, he was on to something. It is really interesting, especially because this is the kind of thing that gets used by people as a positive and a negative, or I guess it would be a positive depending on your own perspective, in that... For someone like me who does enjoy horror movies, I'm like, yeah, this is a, a, a fun, like, you get to see scary things and you get it out of your system and then you don't have to worry about seeing them in real life. Yes, 100%. Cathartic and, yeah, you can kind of channel all your scariness into that and not worry. Right. Yeah, 100% agree. But Nikki disagrees. She says we live in overstimulated times and we crave stimulation for its own sake. Again, wow, can't see that in today's day and age. Yeah, and he, what does he say? He <laughs> says, uh, yeah, you, you, you too, you're guilty of it you're wearing that wet why'd you wear that red dress right <laughs> he says it all seductively it's really it's supposed to be really like sexy and i like the way yeah. he says it it's good i also love that rena doesn't seem to care much for max as he like turns to hit on her and she's like all right let me just talk to oblivion over yeah, here." yeah it's really great the whole dynamic of the talk show is great because max is a sleazy smoking a cigarette being an asshole and it's just like who's watching this show what is this this is crazy Back to Harlan, he's locked onto the signal for real now. There's no plot, he says, just murder and mutilation. And the kicker, of course, you're led to think, oh, it's from far off Malaysia. It could never be happening here. But he's discovered that that was a plant, and it's coming from Pittsburgh. It's coming from inside the house. Always giving my state a bad name. Oh, man, that's right. (laughs) You should be honored. Uh, Nikki Brand goes on a pilgrimage to Pittsburgh. (laughs) Uh, That's another thing I wanted to mention that, like, is really funny to me, is the way that they equate this 
very obviously like this is a snuff film where people are being murdered and the mm-hmm. way they all talk about it like it's tv content like yeah. they're like oh yeah what is this the plot's really weird or or the way <laughs> nikki brand goes like mm, i wonder how you become a contestant like yeah. i love the way they talk about it like it's a game show or honestly to me it anticipates reality tv but it is definitely i mean there were great there were game shows back then so her saying like i want to be a contestant really got me yeah, it is really funny, and it does feel a little like willful ignorance. You know, yes. Max says like, "Oh, it's so realistic. Where do they get an actor who could do that?" Yeah, it's so <laughs> funny. It's so funny. It yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Max visits Nikki at work, which I think is a great contrast of her being a quote emotional rescue hotline, then to her being back at his place looking for porno to get in the mood, then casually popping in Videodrome when he says it's violence and murder. I'm stealing this from somebody else, but they said I can't. I don't have it written, but they said that that scene is really important because if you notice she's very like uninterested when she's on the phone at work and like talking to this caller and like basically just going through the motions but then as soon as she gets to max's house and finds this smutty shit she's like (laughs) so horny and engaged yeah and i think that's interesting yeah Max says it's not exactly sex, and she says, says who? But obviously, we know it's surgery that's the news. Yeah, she didn't have the foresight to, to know that. <laughs> but she is a sadomasochist. She's not only getting turned on by the tape. Oh, she, she would love surgery as the new sex. She would be <laughs> yes. so fucking into it. She's already there. She's putting the cigarette burns on her. She is Kristen Stewart, in a way. Yeah, still Timlin. <laughs> yes. And it's funny, too, I think that it's he's, like, unnerved by her openness about this. And he, like, his body position is, like, he's got crossed arms and he's kind of tilted away from her. And she invites him to try a few things as they have sex with Videodrome on in the background. He pierces her ear and licks the needle and suddenly they're having sex in the Videodrome room. Yeah. But one thing I loved from the just description of this scene in the commentary was when Mark Irwin describes the TV in the background as the urban fireplace. Ooh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. I was going to say something in the midst of, um, you were talking about the scene where pierces they have... Pierces her ear. Pierces her ear. Oh, yeah, pierces her ear. Oh, I was going to make a stupid joke. I'm glad I derailed <laughs> everything to say, it's just like the scene from The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan, <laughs> where, they, where they pierce each other's ears. Right, it's I actually think thing. they just cut that into this yeah, movie. They, yeah, uh-huh, it is. <laughs> That is what happened. Max heads into work the next day. There's a lot of great fake posters on the wall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My favorite is just a giant skeleton labeled Screamers. (laughs) Make Screamers, Cronenberg. Give us Screamers. (laughs) But Masha has been waiting in his office for an hour, and she's there to sell him another softcore porno, but he's not interested, and he tells her about Videodrome. I think it's what's next, he says, and she replies, then God help us. She was trying to warn us the whole time. She was trying to warn us the whole time. She sure was. Better on TV than on the streets, he says, though. Again, sort of laying into that catharsis release. But she says that she'll look into it for him. And this is when Nikki tells Max she's going away for two weeks on assignment to Pittsburgh. And she's going to audition for Videodrome. And he warns her away, but she says this sounds like a challenge. Which, to me, tends to be the sort of, in my opinion, unhealthy attitude of a lot of people who do get into the more extreme, even just movies like Hannibal Holocaust and stuff. Where you go, oh, I don't like it because they are literally like killing animals and stuff in it. And they go, oh, wow, that sounds really intense. I better go watch it. And it's like, well, that's I'm not trying to convince you. It's like when someone tells you to smell something that sucks and you're like i'm not gonna do that but then you do it you do it you smell it you want to know what it smells like 
Exactly. And and we see how self-destructive it can be as she feels she has to prove herself to him, burning herself with the cigarette as he laments that underground video used to be a real subversive act. <laughs> yeah. Masha reports back. She says Videodrome is for real. It's snuff TV and dangerous because of its philosophy, which we already sort of touched on. And she's reluctant to help him find it, but he buys the name as part of a packaging deal with Apollo and Dionysus, which I really laugh at really hard. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. Great commentary on the industry there. The world's a shithole, they agree. <laughs> But she does point him towards the person behind it, which is Professor Brian Oblivion. And Max heads to the cathode ray mission to find him, where inside are these little TV viewing booths with a little lamp and lunch being served. And he finds Bianca Oblivion, who recognizes him from the panel. She says, you said some very superficial things, violence, sex, imagination, catharsis, which I thought is also similar to the sort of, uh, yeah, if you're into escapist <laughs> entertainment yeah. thing from Crimes, from uh, Crimes yeah. of the Future, this is the same sort of like poking fun at like, well, the actual realistic things about it where it's like, yeah, some people are into real uh, like escapist entertainment and I guess good for them that they get ear man. <laughs> the cathode ray mission stuff's really interesting because he said he was pulling at like you know the strange religious self-help orgs that were really popular in the 60s and 70s and he was thinking like what would a salvation army kind of organization look like if it was invented by marshall McLuhan? and that's right. what the cathode ray mission becomes so like trade and he this is a great quote from him trading food for religious conversion always seemed like an interesting and perhaps a bad deal so he's <laughs> playing on that concept and i think that's brilliant because like we've all seen what again what happened to like the evangelical right in this country where it's like they were once this like we thought of as like this nice Jesus worshiping crew, but then they found something. They, they merged forces with something like Videodrome that had a philosophy and now right. they're all right wing maniacs. So <laughs> this movie is pathetic. <laughs> Again, there you go. And in another moment of prophecy, you know, and we, we talk about uh, the crimes of the future and everything, how there is an interesting element for Cronenberg, where he doesn't necessarily see these changes to human physiology as a bad thing. And yeah. I and we see how Brian Oblivion will later talk about how this could have been possibly used as a benefit. I think that in this moment, where Bianca tells him that watching TV helps patch people back into the world's mixing board, yes, there is something to say for that, I think, about TV being a connection point with other people. It helps you know what's yes. going on with the world. And that everything. was Marshall McLuhan's whole thing. His second most famous quote for Medium is the message is like inventing the term global village. Right. Which is what this movie is kind of saying. Ooh, your cat's in the background. Hello, cat. <laughs> but she's the intermediary. And so Max tells her to mention Videodrome to her father and see if he wants to talk. And he heads home and his assistant Bridie visits to tell him Nikki wasn't actually on assignment. So he, she went specifically for Videodrome. And this is where Max has that hallucination of slapping her and her becoming Nikki when she touches the Videodrome tape. And one thing that I thought that was really interesting that David mentions in the commentary is that he didn't want to do anything to signify this hallucination, a color shift or anything, because the hallucination feels real to the hallucinator, yes. and that's what's scary about them. Yes. She is nervous for him, but leaves after dropping off a tape from Professor Oblivion, and when he opens it, the tape breathes at him, which is very upsetting. <laughs> yeah, it is very upsetting. Also, you might note that it's not a VHS tape. It's a Betamax tape every time they show one going into his stomach or whatever. And that's because it, Betamax is smaller than a VHS tape <laughs> and they needed to make it fit in a stomach vagina. 
Hey, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, man. Creative flexibility. Absolutely. And the tape says that the battle for the minds of North America will be fought in the Videodrome. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye, and whatever you see on TV is input to your brain as raw experience, and therefore is reality, while reality is less than TV. Holy shit. That is a thesis of a major news network that I've mentioned five times already today. <laughs> Good Lord. If you put it on TV and you say it enough times and it becomes the number one network, it's a, it, it may as well be true. It's fact. It's reality. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that this also plays into an interesting element about the new flesh. The idea of that being like, well, more people might know us as the person that we project oh yes podcast hosts right and even just on social media you see how people promote these like aspirational lives and everything oh yeah the fake instagram like look how good my life is but it's we all know the truth right yeah and so when he talks about reality being less than tv or social media in this case i think it is really interesting to be like well if more people know you as that to them that is the reality 100 percent 100%. 100%. That's brilliant. Brilliantly put. I couldn't agree more. It's just, it's, it's just, uh, everything about the new flesh is such an interesting idea that he's exploring and poking at here. It's just such a fascinating movie. Yeah. One of, truly one of the best. I, I cannot think of a more, and, and best of all, have we mentioned it's like 83 minutes also? <laughs> like, tight, gets tight, in, tight. gets out. <laughs> it's a big, big 83 number. 83 is the number today. 1983, 83 minutes. Beautiful. <laughs> There is a shift in tone as he starts to directly address Max and says, hey, man, you're half in a hallucinatory world already. Yeah, welcome. (laughs) Uh, He also says, I had a tumor caused by visions, not the other way around, not the visions caused by a tumor. And when they removed the tumor, it was called Videodrome. (laughs) Fucking sick. Unbelievable. (laughs) It seemed really so good. Oh, man. And suddenly he's assassinated from behind, and the killer is revealed to be Nikki, and she wants a kiss, and the TV starts to breathe. Hell yeah. And he sticks his head in as the screen, or into the screen as it bulges out. This is one of the more famous of the effects of this movie. It's on the cover of the uh, the disc and everything. And it's very strange and surreal. This was done with reflective white paint and dental dam, which is a stronger, stretchier kind of rubber used for bridge work <laughs> dentistry. And something else. <laughs> you Google it. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, look, my cat's here too. Wow. Cat party. Your cat looks a lot like my cat. It really does. Wow. Very similar tortoiseshell. Is that a tortoiseshell cat? Yeah. Cali- I, I think mine is Yours officially is calico because okay. it's less less patterned a little bit. I but, see. I see. Uh, but yeah, very similar coloration for sure. <laughs> How about that? Look, folks, you're missing out yeah. on, on cat talk. <laughs> you got to pay the Patreon and get the zooms. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, they also tested a weather balloon first and they yeah. stretched it over a frame the size of a TV screen. All, that, all the technical stuff of making that is so funny. And I also think it's cool that... He mentions like, you know, the interactivity of TV and how that was new at this time and it wasn't even a thing at this time. Right. And so he puts like the Atari controllers on top of the TV <laughs> as like a little signal to be like, look, it's interactive. And I thought yeah. like, that's a little ni- neat detail I never really paid attention to. Definitely. And and he's absolutely right in that it has TV and internet and video games have all become more and more interactive in a way that just draws you further and further into those worlds. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just think of American Idol voting on who gets to advance. Wow. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So there you go. 
taking a poll on Twitter to see what I eat for dinner. There you go. <laughs> Wait, what if I ate that way? <laughs> There's got to be someone online who lives that way, for sure. A monstrous. <laughs> hey, it's a Cronenberg film. Yeah, of course. He heads back to the cathode ray mission to confront Bianca and admits that he's been hallucinating since he first saw a Videodrome. And this is where she says that the video is just what causes the tone of the hallucinations and that it causes these visions by inducing a brain tumor. And she also says that Brian is actually dead almost a year. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> but he knew about all this stuff and recorded it? What? <laughs> He yeah, st- talked directly to me. It's mind bending. Well, that's that's part of the yeah. That's the beauty of this movie is you can just brush anything off as hallucination, oh, or yeah. you can think deeper and be like, "What does it mean?" Yep. And he saw Videodrome as the next phase in the evolution of man as a technological animal, but was killed when he tried to stop them from using Videodrome for negative purposes. However, he saw public life on tape as more real than private life in the flesh, which, you know, we already kind of just talked about that. But it is uh, it is very interesting just as someone who puts themselves on tape every week. Yeah. I also think the character, was it Masha, is such an interesting character because she's like this older producer of more genteel stuff. Yeah. And she's like vaguely aware of Videodrome and like wants to know as little about it as possible and tries to warn Max away from it and like, you know, keeps her head in the sand until until she she can't anymore or like, yeah, I guess I don't I don't know if that's a hallucination or if that's real when she gets on the Videodrome at the end or whatever. Yeah, her her fate is ambiguous, and uh, I love it that way. (laughs) Yeah, we love it. She sends him off with more tapes, which he watches while scratching a rash on his gut with his gun, which I thought was kind of a funny image in a way. (laughs) Very funny image. Also, like, him storing his gun in there, and, like, like you can, you know, I love the, like, the scene where he kills Harlan. Like, did he really come there and (laughs) take a gun out of his chest, or, like, did he just pull a gun out of his pocket yeah, like it's, who knows yeah it's all it's all great <laughs> i also love that the professor says that he thinks the video drum tumors are actually a new organ not something to be removed but embraced by humanity as it changes our direction because there's nothing real outside perception that doesn't get more crimes in the future than that baby yeah again i'll say it again because it's so true we're it's 2022 nearly 40 years after this movie and there's a new david Cronenberg movie in theaters that is just as heady and full of ideas and they're the same ideas and not that that's a bad thing i just love that nothing better to me than like a paul schrader or a david cronenberg who just make essentially i'm gonna say the same movie but that's reductive because obviously they're all different and they all function differently and they all just tackle the same themes in different ways and it's just we're we're so lucky to be alive when when david cronenberg is hey i'll take a million card counters and first reforms 100 (laughs) percent card counter i'm furious there's no 4k of that movie i had to buy it on blu-ray and uh so tweet at i'm just kidding i don't know who (laughs) even is that a 24 movie i think it is so that's a 24 lionsgate distributes a 24 on blu-ray i recently found out 4k at lionsgate annoy them hell yeah folks we're going to get it done. Bring you my fringe causes anywhere I can. <laughs> but yeah, he, he looks down. He sees the rashes become this vagina that he shoves the gun inside of. And suddenly the gun is gone, despite his quote unquote snapping back into reality, which I think also does a really great job of keeping you on edge and being like, despite this looking real, is this what we would actually be seeing? Yeah. And I mean, that's like, I think the part where David said the thing about the gut and I'm like, right. Oh. So cool. (laughs) He gets a call saying Barry Convex wants to talk about Videodrome and has sent a car. So off Max goes. 
inside the car is yet another video screen where yes. again you get this brian oblivion style recorded intro and a spectacular optical keeping an eye on the world if i ever start a llc or production company spectacular optical that's i'm, I'm taking go. it there you go this is the new version of putting it in an envelope and mailing it to yourself <laughs> yeah <laughs> saying it on a podcast and letting everyone else possibly take it first <laughs> And hoping that one day I remember that I said that. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, but he goes to the glasses shop and he tries on a bunch of glasses, which Cronenberg said is something that he just happens to like, but also does play into the themes of like vision and seeing into the real uh, reality of everything. Yeah. They say, we do everything from glasses for third world nations to missile guidance systems for NATO. And also, we make Videodrome. Unfortunately, Max tapped into the test transmissions. And so they've, they've now met down, uh, downtown and Barry wants to record one of his hallucinations, which the helmet is pretty gross looking. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a fleshy color with the wires as veins. It's, it looks like the bed in Crimes of the Future. Like it's still, it's very <laughs> fleshy, but it also, it's like this huge bulky, I don't know how to describe it. Again, my, I can vi- picture it very well, but I can't describe it. It's like this sure. big bulky head mechanism very fleshy and when you put it on it has like very 1983 computer graphics of what he sees <laughs> yeah like imagine if an oculus rift was like a living thing yeah. that yes. you put on your head <laughs> and like and the and the processing power it had looked like like 8-bit <laughs> like an 8-bit <laughs> nes game or something it's one of those old viewfinders yeah you had to like click through <laughs> to the next and like- <laughs> watch like stills from the lion king yeah that's what i had on my viewfinder computer enhance <laughs> <laughs> He hallucinates Nikki and being on Videodrome, but suddenly she's a TV, not a person, as he whips it. And there was a cut effect that was supposed to go in there, too, where the TV was meant to get sort of skinned with the casing splitting to reveal the flesh underneath as he attacked. Cool. Uh, yeah, I'm sad that that didn't make it <laughs> I in. wanted to say that, like, Beavis or Butthead. Cool. <laughs> Sounds cool. You know what? Beavis and Butthead would be right to say cool about it. Yeah. Because it's fucking right. It is indeed cool. Yeah. <laughs> But then it's Masha on screen in the same dress as Nikki, and he suddenly wakes up back in bed at home with Masha dead and tied up in the same bed next to him. He calls Harlan to come over right away. Take some pictures of what's in my bed, please. Harlan is bemused at first, but then says, what the fuck? There's nothing in there. What the fuck, Patron? (laughs) Yeah. Ren promises to tell him everything in the lab in an hour after Harlan gets pissed about being ordered around, and... I just want to also shout out Peter Dvorsky in this role as Harlan. He is really, really incredible in a small performance here. Yeah, I really enjoy him. And like, I'm not super familiar with him. He just seems like a Canadian guy elevated by Cronenberg, who probably is in less interesting stuff more often. Right. Well, he said that he like looked into what he was doing and just like kind of became like an actual computer guy. (laughs) I fucking love that. That's amazing. That's also funny because there's a guy in the one of the dudes in the pitch meeting early on who became like a city councilman or something (laughs) had to explain his role as the porn guy (laughs) in videodrome to the the masses that's incredible it is hey that's this was the long game where he was like go and run for election and tell people about the movie yeah david (laughs) david loves marketing (laughs) anywhere he can get it that's right and when Max arrives, Harlan tells him, guess what? There was never any video drone broadcasts. We didn't pick up shit. I was playing you pre-recorded cassettes from Barry to get you involved. Yep. It's a conspiracy. Exactly. Their plot is this. The rest of the world is tough and North America is soft. Oh, God. <laughs> Sound familiar? Jesus. It just is Tucker and Carlson monologues. It drives That's me right. crazy. Okay. <laughs> 
basically says, we're going to use this to get rid of the cesspool you wait around in and all the people who watch this shit so we can be rid of the moral rot. I mean, yeah, it is. It is just right-wing talking points. It's right-wing talking points, yeah. They say you're ready for the next phase and Barry shoves a a Betamax tape into Max's gut hole, (laughs) which is a message for Max to be brainwashed by, saying, kill your partners and give us Channel 83. And of course, this works really well as a gross action, but also as like a metaphorical thing of them giving the message of the of the of their instructions to him, brainwashing him in huh. this way. A, a group of powerful right-wing people having <laughs> control over a TV network? It would never <laughs> who, work. Who could imagine? Yeah. Who could imagine? I don't know what you mean. And Woods, like we said, you know, the the Betamax tapes were chosen because they had to fit it into the slit, which yeah. was not very huge. And Woods said that he hated this thing. Yeah. After uncomfortably wearing it for a while, he said, I'm not an actor anymore. I'm just the bearer of the slit. <laughs> to which Debbie <laughs> Harry responded, now you know what it's like. Fucking <laughs> incredible. Very funny. Fucking incredible. <laughs> if the commentary has even one more quote like that from them, I'm, gonna, I'm eagerly watching it. Yes. And he pulls out the gun, which is gooey as hell and very gross. Oh, yeah. That scene where it... Is this when it fuses on his hands? Yeah. Tetsuo (laughs) the Iron Man's his own hand, which he says on the commentary, like, you know, this this would be done with computers today, which, by the way, all the computery stuff in Crimes of the Future, you know, looks not as good as this shit. So, like, um, this... He said, you know, it's very crude looking, but... But I prefer that than the alternative. And I totally agree. It looks like you you can like tell like this is a static shot of a special effect hand. <laughs> like it yeah. is very much like <laughs> not trying to be anything other than that. But And when like the thumb moves a little bit, yeah. like, they're trying. Yeah, like, they, they put, they, they put a little in. effort in the thumb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is cool that we see that this is just like another hallucination as he strides down the halls of his office, ignoring everyone, but also having no gun in his hand. Yeah. And he goes and assassinates some people. He sure as hell does. He tracks down Moses and Rafe and he shoots them in the boardroom and then he flees with the help of his assistant and heads for the cathode ray mission. The brainwashing also wants Bianca dead because she knows too much. She does. But one of the things she knew is that this shit was coming. (laughs) True. It's brilliant. (laughs) He reveals the gun is even more fucking nasty and part of his hand now, but she tricks him into seeing Nikki Brand getting killed on Videodrome. Right. Videodrome is death, she tells him. And a gun emerges from the TV. And then the TV and the gun are both fleshy. And they shoot Max a bunch of times. And also the gun looks like a penis. And this is what he says. Now, this is what television's <laughs> doing to you. He's basically yeah. getting fucked by television, which I think everybody yeah. is. Great. Yes, exactly. And uh, suddenly there's a fleshy TV with his chest as the screen bleeding from being shot. But she does seem to have cut through. You know, she says it's always painful to remove the cassette to change the program. You can see how it might be difficult to, uh, let's say, convince your parents to stop watching Fox News, let's say. Uh Sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's addictive. Right. She says, you've become the video word made flesh and you have to turn against Videodrome. Death to Videodrome. Long live the new flesh. Woo. Woo. She said it. There is also an interesting element to this, though, where she's also just using him. Yes. So, you know, any anyone who has power, you got to be suspicious of, basically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's the message here. That's right. He tracks down Harlan at the glasses shop, who says, we wouldn't want to keep using you until you're all gone. <laughs> Shoves a, another flesh tape in his gut. But the gut wound doesn't let go. 
taking off Harlan's hand and turning it into a fleshy, literal hand grenade that blows him up. Yeah, it's awesome. It's That is another moment that is laugh out loud funny to me. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> he pulls out an old-fashioned, like, cartoonish World War One grenade or whatever it is. <laughs> Yeah, I also love, too, that it's just, like, we've been getting a lot of great effects in terms of, like, the fleshy, gross stuff, but for there to just suddenly be, like, a fun explosion. Yeah, he explodes (laughs) against the wall. It's pretty great. (laughs) Next, Max heads to the trade show for Barry, which, not a thousand percent sure what's going on with the performance. (laughs) I wrote down, I wrote down something there. Uh, Here's what he said about that. The Renaissance trade show fair, he said, he said, Medici and Da Vinci came from the phrase uh the eyes are the window of the soul a medieval conceit and as a good medievalist i thought it applied now the idea literally that when you look in someone's eyes you really get a sense of what someone's soul is like and they meant that literally not figuratively and i thought that given the idea of looking into a tv and having tv look back at you and as someone who has who does have to watch himself on tv as a director and stuff I thought, like during interviews, uh, I thought that would be a good theme for Convex's show. Even though it's a tacky trade show, it's kind of got what would happen if the trade shows got pretentious. That's a, I mean, even that had a fucking thesis, you know what I mean? <laughs> it really does. I also love that the other quote that's up on on the screen is, uh, love comes in at the eyes, or lo- love goes <laughs> in through the eyes. And sort of the flip side of that that it's implied is so does hate yeah and, anger and, and also violence. i love that like that's perfect about how the right wing gaslights people and to like right. thinking their horrible shit is like virtuous it's yeah it's so 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 good suddenly max gets up and shoots the hell out of barry <laughs> and then he in in this okay this is interesting because he dies in the most vicious way in the movie barry convex how would you say it convulses and his body all the two erupts erupts and tumors come out of his face and shit yeah and that was supposed to be how everybody died in the movie but for budgetary reasons presumably and maybe even just to make it more impactful when it happens it was only the is the only time we see a death like that yeah i i did find an interesting quote about that where they talked about how in the script it was conceived as an external effect where it shot literally bits of flesh that land on them and then swallow them whole that's right but then In figuring out how to actually do the effect, Baker convinced him to go for the the internal cancer that then explodes, and it was going to happen to six people, and then two. It was just going to be this guy and also uh, his partner in the boardroom, Mm. but they said that they didn't want to use the horrible subjective cancer imagery except for the death of the sleazy villain, Convex, because the killing of Moses, since he's he's really ultimately a good guy, would be shown as it really happens on the reality plane using ordinary blood bags and squib charges. So yeah, re- saving this brutality for the real villain of the movie, I think, is, yeah. a, is a good move. It's like, you know, we all remember the, the most iconic David Cronenberg moments, probably the scanner's head explode because it's become a gif. This is right. this movie's scanner's head explode moment. Yeah, definitely so. Max heads for the harbor. He finds a boat with a condemned vehicle sign. And it's funny that I thought, in a way, he is a condemned vehicle for their machinations. Hmm, interesting. Hmm. Hmm. And he sits on a cot, he finds, he goes to smoke a cigarette, and he's out. But then he hallucinates Nikki talking to him from a TV set. And I thought this was interesting that they were like, well, when you're tired and you can't even get a smoke, who's there to comfort you? TV. Yeah, it's there for you. The one you take to bed with you. That's right. 
And I also did notice that now instead of Video Ranger, it's labeled a Videodrome set, like the the actual uh, label for I it. I see. Okay. Yeah. And she says, you have to totally transform yourself for the next phase of attacking Videodrome. And to fully embody the new flesh, you have to destroy the old flesh. Don't be scared. And she shows him shooting himself on the screen, which then explodes in a bunch of meat. <laughs> uh, pig guts, apparently. Right. was they shot, a, they shot a bunch of different ways, but apparently one of this is pig guts that pop out of it. Yeah, and he follows her order. Long live the new flesh. And... <laughs> you know, I, I wonder where um, this was part of his assignment from Bianca, where if like she sent him to take him out, him take himself out of the picture. You know, this was I think this is exacerbated in my mind by the idea that they almost did have Nikki and Bianca yeah. sort of become the same. one in his mind. So if this is Nikki then telling him, hey, you got to take yourself out, long live the new flesh, that it might just be more manipulation and yeah. not even just a hallucination of his own. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And David said, you know, long live the new flesh, very mysterious. What does that mean? Does it mean a physical life after death? Does it mean the new technological bodies, bodies that incorporate technology that we're developing and continue to develop? And as an existentialist, I have to say, it doesn't mean physical life after death. So for me, it's a potent moment that he kills himself and gets to me on a strange deep level. He like finds it very emotional that he, uh, yeah, I think it is a great final scene. You know, it's the repeated actions are very impactful. Imitating what he sees on TV is obviously thematically important. Yeah. It's also encouraging you to embrace the future of humanity, but to use it for good. And yeah, this is a theme, you know, the new flesh is a theme that he's still very at age 80. This man is still making movies about the new flesh and how humans, and technology and now like climate change are affecting our bodies god bless him for it and i love that he said you know universal was a very conservative studio at the time distributing this very not conservative movie and it's he said it'd be easy for very easy for me to say they didn't understand it or they therefore didn't distribute it properly but he doesn't think that he just really don't know what it was why it bombed i guess is why he's saying this right. obviously he's just like it's a difficult thing to market but he's happy that it had, you know, a strong life yeah. afterwards. Absolutely. And now, Brett, yeah. we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Sure. I mean, we we explained it over the past uh, 90 minutes or so here. It has, like, transcended its time period. It is from 1983, but it hits just as hard in 2022, even even harder, in fact, because it had all the, it predicted things. It didn't. The internet wasn't around. All these things that it predicted weren't around, and it's really just impressive on like a base level of wow, this movie really nailed what humanity became. And like to do that, you have to be in touch with humanity. And I think nobody's more in touch with humanity than David Cronenberg. And this movie is a perfect, I don't want to say parable or something, but like it's a perfect movie about the anxieties of modern times and how we all are staring at screens all the time. This is like the idea, taking the idea to the extreme of, okay, well, that can't be good for us, right? (laughs) What is that doing to us? Is it making us crazy murderous psychos? Is it giving us cancer? And David says, yeah, all that. (laughs) We're getting, all that's true. (laughs) So yeah, I think it will only get, it only ages, it ages like a fine wine. The, the older it gets, the more it has to offer, I think. Yeah, absolutely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is 
so representative of the time that it came out in, but also is still so applicable to the world that we live in now. Yes. You know, it's the kind of thing where you can look at it and what it's talking about contemporaneously, but also apply it to your own life. And that, I think, is what makes great art, is when you are able to apply it to your own life, and it has that kind of long-lasting life, the new flesh, as it were, to... to persist long beyond its own natural lifespan of an idea perhaps yeah one thing we didn't talk about that i just want to mention is that like it also has this whole meta layer of oh videodrome itself the 1983 film is a movie about sex and violence right so like is this movie a bad influence too like it's all baked in and i think you know brilliant no notes david you did good (laughs) Yeah, that meta aspect definitely works for me. You know, there was one more quote from Cronenberg that I wanted to read where he says, I've always been interested in dark things and other people's fascination with dark things. Plus the idea of people locking themselves in a room and turning a key on a television set so that they can watch something extremely dark. And by doing that, allowing them to explore their fascinations, that... We, t- we mentioned it briefly. That is what horror is. It is a catharsis for people to be able to see scary things, explore their fears. In a controlled... Man. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I think that this movie does that so perfectly while also being about that in a way. And it consistently blurs the line between what appears to be reality and what appears to be hallucination in a way that creates a slow decline. And the patience to do that is something that is rare, I think, to, to really create a world where you're already invested and then start the mental degradation is, I, I think very difficult to do and for him to not only pull it off but to knock it out of the park while also having some of the best effects ever made yeah (laughs) and and some really incredible performance and a a thesis that gives you plenty to chew on i I just think it's the best horror movie ever made i love it i'm glad i convinced you (laughs) you definitely did brett i want to thank you so much for coming on the show man this was an absolute blast please tell people where they can check you out all over the place sure uh thank you for having me this was awesome my podcast is the new flesh podcast ah how relevant (laughs) uh the new flesh podcast you can find it anywhere you find podcasts and i'm on twitter unfortunately all the fucking time and i shouldn't be (laughs) but if you want to follow me there i'm at brett redacted two t's in brett and thank you so much check out the new flesh podcast if you uh i'm sure you'll like it if you like this show hell yeah i certainly encourage you all to go check out the new flesh podcast uh and brett is very funny on twitter so check him out there too oh thank you you're a great host by the way this was a great show and i wish i had your level of ability to get back to your notes in a seamless fashion (laughs) (laughs) you're very good (laughs) thank you thank you as far as my plugs people can find me on twitter at little horror phl that username applies pretty much everywhere but i'm mostly on twitter check out the patreon if you're enjoying the show we have bonus episodes commentaries all kinds of good stuff uh talk about things that maybe don't necessarily fit as squarely into best horror movie ever made like we've talked about the treehouse of horror we ranked our favorite treehouse of horror episodes yes we talked about begotten at one point just because it's like an interesting movie that we were like well this isn't maybe the best but it's certainly worth talking about i love that the patreon the not quite best movies (laughs) that we kind of like in philly (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly so yeah check all that stuff out and rate and review the show if you're enjoying it and that's it bye bye